Hey friends, I'm really excited about sharing this episode with you today. I got a chance to sit down with an author and a practicing psychotherapist, Dr. Paul J. Leslie. I've read several of his books over the years. I've, I've really been admiring him from a distance, and it was just wonderful to finally sit down with him face to face, at least through Zoom, uh, to record this episode. Uh, he's someone that I really admire in in terms of a leader and a trendsetter in the field that I'm in, uh, the field of modern psychotherapy. Uh, we discuss his book, Perceptions and Possibilities, Strategic and Solution-Oriented Approaches to Working with Depression, and we get into so much. Uh, as, as we get into in this episode, I, I asked him if these three points would sort of encapsulate the heart of his argument in the book. And, and I think that, that Dr. Leslie agreed that in terms of working with someone battling depression in the context of psychotherapy, he promotes an approach that moves from psychopathology to potential, from interpretation to active interaction, and from a linear cause and effect behavioral theory to a more circular systemic view of how people actually operate and experience the world. Uh, we, get er we get into everything from the psychiatrist Milton Erickson to the current research on the importance of establishing a strong therapeutic alliance to a type of bespoke therapy where we are focusing on making sure that our therapeutic approach is adapting to the client in front of us rather than forcing the client to fit our own theoretical orientation. Uh, there's so much that, that we get into that I can't wait for you to access. And I think there's so much more that we could have explored. I'm hoping that Dr. Leslie will be open to future episodes because there's many other books that he's written that I'd really want to get into. Uh, this was one of my favorite conversations. I think there's great energy and chemistry between the two of us. And yeah, I, I hope that you get into it and and learn something new and, and are challenged, whether you're a practicing psychotherapist or not. As always, I want to encourage you to share this episode with people who might benefit from it. And if you get a chance, if you enjoyed this episode or any other episode on Psyche Podcast, I want to encourage you to go to any of the places that you listen to it, whether that's Spotify or Apple Podcasts, and there leave me a positive rating and review. As always, I want to encourage you to continue the conversation. So Paul, it is really great to connect with you this Saturday afternoon. I've I, like I mentioned, I've been kind of following your work and admiring your scholarship and, and just what you think about in terms of therapy from a distance for a while now. And I'm just glad to finally have this conversation in the books and to be able to have a human connection with you. So I'm, I'm really excited about this conversation. Well, thank you. I'm honored to uh, be asked to chat. So uh, I'm looking forward to it. Awesome. Okay. So Paul, maybe as a way to begin, would you mind just describing for the listeners, kind of who you are professionally, kind of what you're up to, and then from there we can kind of launch into a conversation. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I'm a psychotherapist. I'm a college professor. I live in the state of South Carolina in the southeastern United States. I've written several books on psychotherapy and healing and personal development, and uh, I have found myself coming to psychotherapy uh, in a different angle maybe than when I started to where uh, I'm learning more every day about the importance of the therapeutic alliance, the importance of uh, connection uh, with other people, and the importance of the uh, way we frame our interactions and sessions. So, um, I have a, an interest in, in many different things in life that have kind of come and blended into the way that I, I do therapy, and that changes uh, client to client. There's no sure. specific way to do it. So when uh, I was asked that recently on an uh, interview uh, podcast, or I can't remember what it was, and someone basically said, well, what, uh, Dr. Leslie, what kind of 
uh, therapist are you? And I said, hopefully an effective one, Mm. because that's at the end of the day, we're either being effective and helpful or not. It doesn't really matter, you know, what our degrees, pieces of paper or uh, theoretical orientation or uh, polished techniques. If we're not creating change, assisting in the creating and co-creating of change with our client, uh, it, it it really kind of becomes a moot point what kind of therapist one is. So I, I strive to be an effective and uh, hopefully one who instills hope in people. I, I love that, Paul. And, and all of that so resonates with me. And I, I think there's a lot of connections where, where I think I kind of want to start before jumping into this book that you've written on depression, which I so enjoyed. I, I kind of just want to tease out a little bit of what you just said. And 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 I'll say I, I've listened to many of the interviews that you've done uh, with different you know podcasts and and shows, and so I, I think I've picked this up from from some of the things you've said when you've sort of gone on this journey of of kind of changing your approach to therapy, or like you just said, kind of caring a little bit more about the therapeutic alliance and, and being more creative. Can you describe some of the things that were happening in your personal life? that might have been a type of impetus for that change. And and I'm 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 thinking of however you feel comfortable sharing this, maybe kind of the divorce or or your 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 entry into the hoodoo tradition oh, of, of the okay. South. Yeah, sure. Sure. Yeah, a lot of that was kind of happening all around the the same time. Uh certainly my my divorce uh you know I've been divorced and, you know, like a lot of people and remarried and all, all the, that kind of stuff. Um, you know, one of my old mentors said, everybody goes through crap. Mm. It's just mine right now, my yeah. time. And I think that that's kind of it in hindsight. But uh, I, I think not so much uh, my divorce having an impact on my way of doing therapy, other than it made me a heck of a lot more uh, empathic to people who go through uh, such things. But it's around that time since you brought it up, I got uh, fascinated in uh, the work of a, a great deal of uh, uh, kind of an indigenous culture in, uh, in my area. As I mentioned, I live in presently live in uh, South Carolina. I've been here for, for actually quite a few years now. And I was hearing uh, every now and then in some of my therapeutic sessions, people uh, would would talk about uh, this idea of someone putting the root on them. And I heard about this, uh, not so much, I, sh- I should say, but a lot of supervision sessions where I was hearing it from other therapists as well. And what that was about was that sometimes people, when they suffered from anxiety, depression, whatever, some people viewed this as that they had been cursed, the root correspond to something that we we call here in this area root doctors Hmm. now root doctor is uh, also known as a hoodoo doctor or a a root person Uh, you know it has many different names and it's based on the core of it is based on uh the um, african-american experience of uh through slavery times here in the united states up to present of kind of a blending of the a lot of the spiritual, mystical ideas that they brought with them uh, from uh, Africa when they were enslaved and brought to to the United States. And it's a blending specifically in the area that I'm in with Protestant uh, Christianity. Now, in uh, some areas in the Gulf, particularly around New Orleans, uh, it was more French uh, Catholic. So those ideas got blended with French Catholicism. Or Catholicism in general, rather. Sure. That became uh, known as voodoo with a V. Got you. But hoodoo on on my side, it's more um, with uh, blending with Protestant and other um, spiritual ideas, even from colonial America. I mean, uh, some of these things uh, were were, it it was not just uh, with African Americans. Uh, uh, The English, Scottish settlers all had their kind of. Uh, mystical, spiritual, magical beliefs. Sure. But it got uh, blended in to this system that primarily, not all, but primarily practiced by this group of 
people up and down the eastern uh, seaboard that we refer to as Gullah. Sometimes in Georgia, they, they refer to them as Geechee because of the Ogeechee uh, River. But the Gullah are the descendants who lived in the Sea Islands, basically from Jacksonville, North Carolina, all the way down to Jacksonville, Florida. After Right after the Civil War, many of the plantations uh, were abandoned. You know, the, the primary source of labor uh, had been taken away because the enslaved people had been freed. And uh, just uh, even if that wasn't the primary uh, source of labor, the, the economy was just devastated. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the Germans march to the sea, you know, destroying many uh, properties. So a lot of those things were abandoned. Those things being plantations. So these uh, people who came known as the Gullah were the enslaved people who kind of lived out on their own in the Sea Islands, still interacting with the the general population, but kind of separated by um, some uh, waterways. So they retained kind of their own culture. They have their own language. It's a blending of some aspects of African with English and sometimes some other things mixed in, and it's a beautiful uh, uh, culture and very fascinating. If anyone's a, into literary references, uh, Pat Conway wrote a book about uh, his time uh, being a teacher for a year uh, working with the the Gullah. Um, so it's a fascinating book of title that I cannot remember. But if you look up Pat Conroy, it's in there. Okay. Yeah. So um, I kept hearing about people getting the root put on them. And so I uh, decided that what I'd do is uh, try to figure out what was going on here, because I remember distinctly there was a uh, lady I was in a clinical supervision with who was a- asking, I don't know how to deal with this guy. I'm trying to help him with his anxiety. He's having panic issues, and he swears that someone put a root on him, and like a curse. Now, the root is, as I mentioned, it, it's tied to, uh, we call them root doctors. In the early days, these Hoodoo doctors often uh, were not only putting curses, but also were helping with healing. So they would use a lot of herbal medicine, herbal remedies, sometimes using roots as a source of magical incantations and all these kind of things. So that's how the root got stuck in the the uh, the, the um, lexicon of, of dealing with this stuff. So the uh, uh, young lady who was having trouble with this client. Uh, got to the point to where several of us were like, if it's not, if nothing you're going to tell this person is going to change their belief system because it's so entrenched, then you just, the only way to break it is you've got to recommend that uh, either, you know, they, they, you know, totally abandon everything that they truly believe in, which they're not going to do, or right. uh, they got to find someone who they believe has the power to remove the curse or the root. But that really kind of surprised me because I'm kind of an analytical thinker. And I'm like, here I am in the uh, 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 21st century and some of this stuff's going on. So it really drove me to start investigating what's going on in my own backyard. And what I found was a very hidden tradition, a very hidden magical system, if you will, that not everybody's uh, privy to. And it was alive and well, and and people paid money, and they'd go to see root doctors for everything from uh, issues with love or lack of love, issues of money or lack of money, issues of uh, health or lack of health. And uh, these people were not only uh, generally, uh, I think, in in popular culture, voodoo and hoodoo, painted in a negative light, but a lot of them actually fulfilled the societal roles of, of the local medicine man, medicine woman, uh, shaman, if you will. And so the more I researched and, and read into this and then actually decided, what the heck, I'm going to really investigate this fully. So I you know, started trying to track down people who purported to be real root doctors. And I, I went through a lot of charlatans and I found some really wonderful uh, true practitioners, and I tried to learn from them. Not so much for me. And again, I'm I'm not a root doctor. I'm not sure. a shaman. None of that. But what is it that gave them such power to create transformation in 
their interactions with their clients. That also set me into a different direction in general. I mean, I, it wasn't just root doctors. I had the fortune to talk to uh, Tibetan monks who had come over from India uh, for some uh, lectures. I got to sit with them and ask them questions about, you know, magical and healing things. I met to some uh, Indian swamis that, uh, you know, kind of found some real interesting stuff there. Uh, you know, new age thinkers, uh, psychics, mediums. I was just talking to anyone who purported to be um, healing, be a, be a healer. Sure. And trying to figure out what is it that that's creating the the feeling of healing, the feeling of transformation within those specific uh, people uh, who go to see uh, these uh, shamans and root doctors and, and all of that. And what I ended up finding out was a couple of things. The first thing uh, that really kind of surprised me is how similar in some ways psychotherapy can be to these other things, not so much in the techniques, uh, not so much in the beliefs, not so much in the uh, the practices, but setting of expectancy, mm. the power of, of creating hope, uh, the interruption of patterns, uh, unconscious and conscious patterns, the act of a therapeutic uh, performance, if you will. In which the the uh, the healer now is a part of the connection with the clients, where they're co-creating this uh, almost uh, artistic theatrical uh, performance to create uh, change. And I went back and I, I looked at a lot of the the people who I had uh, grown up reading about, admiring as as psychotherapists. Sure. And what's funny is how much we've lost of that, in my opinion. I if agree. you go back and you look, uh, yeah, a lot of people do. This is what surprises me because I always think I'm going <laughs> like, you know, slaughter some sacred cows. Sure, and sure. Hundred percent, brother. You know, <laughs> but, but you go back and you look at at people like Fritz Perls, mm. uh, who I don't believe was a very nice person, but mm. was an absolutely amazing therapist. Albert Ellis, Albert Ellis, who could be a real not so nice person, but could also be a nice person too. And he, he it's like there, there's a charisma. Virginia Satir created mm. this constant feeling of love and connection with whoever. I mean, it's this performance that you do sculpting families and and uh, Milton Erickson, uh, who I could talk about for years, uh, just <laughs> meeting every person in a specific manner unique to that person and getting them to do things. Jay Haley, you know, one of the foundations of family therapy, the, the ordeal therapy, all of these things were about creating not just change, but creating an experience. Mm. And so that's kind of, I, I credit the investigation of hoodoo getting me to see that it's not really our theories and our techniques and those kind of things that often uh, create the change. It certainly has a part of it. But it is the interaction that we're having between ourselves and our clients. And here's the thing. If you go and you read uh, about all the, the vast amount of research in the field of the common factors yes. in psychotherapy, uh, it, it's all there. It's pretty much that there has to be the therapeutic alliance. That's the core of it. There has to be that setting of expectation that, that change can occur. And and I think the most I ever saw in any of the studies that an actual theory or technique has in the change process is no more than 13% of all the ingredients. So we've been, I believe, based on the research I'm reading, the empirical data, is we have been looking and the you know for how to improve all in the wrong places. Sure, we we have relied too much uh, as a field. We have relied too much on our theories and our techniques and our our, uh, our 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 structures, our protocols. And in the end, those are I'm not saying those aren't helpful. But when we start to view therapy as as through those only those lenses, we lose so much that we could be utilizing to create dynamic changes, not just effective. I mentioned I want to be an effective therapist, sure. but down deep, I, I actually strive to be a transformational therapist, as I hope everyone does, because 
Being effective means you've just taken some of the edge off. Being transformational means that the person leaves therapy a completely different person mm. than they were when they came in. Yeah, I really like and that. So, yeah. So it's, you know, that's kind of where, where, where the, the goal I went. So it wasn't so much just my, my personal issue, but gotcha. more this exploration of, uh, you know, what, what a great healers do and, and somehow, you know, getting off our high horses or my high horse thinking, Hey, I got a doctorate. I got this. It's like, well, I really didn't know uh, about being transformational. I thought it was in something I did technically. And now I'm finding that that's only just one small part of it. Yeah. 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 Oh man. I, I couldn't agree more. I'm so resonating with everything you said. And there's, there's so much within that that I'd like to explore but I'm going to try to contain myself a little bit because I'm hoping we will have future conversations because I, I do kind of want to focus on this book you've written, Perceptions and Possibilities, Strategic and Solution-Oriented Approaches to Working with Depression. And, and there's actually some things that you were just talking about that I wanted to kind of tease out in terms of the book. But before doing that, if someone were to ask you, you know, of all the things you could have written about, and I know you've written quite a few books, why work on depression? Why, why kind of target a book on depression, bringing some of these ideas into that specific realm? Mm -hmm. what, what, what got well, you to I, write that book? I found that lately there's a plethora of work on anxiety. Yes. And really, really good stuff. But we're, we're basically obsessed with anxiety as a culture now. If you just look at any you know, uh, you know, open up your 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 computer with all the articles. There's going to be something about anxiety. Sure, people are more more anxious than they ever have been. Which I don't know how that's even true. How you would even measure that? Mm. Since you know, you know, thousands of years, and no one was taking those uh, MMPIs back uh, then. Yeah, you that's know. a great point. Uh, but <laughs> but still, we're very anxious culture, and there's a lot. You know, and then and trauma is an anxiety. Uh, disorder, you know, post-traumatic stress sure. and generalized anxieties and all. And, and there's some good stuff about that. But I found there's not enough about uh, working with depression from a strategic uh, and solution-oriented perspective um, because uh, there, there's some people who've done some really good stuff. But I, I'm finding it. And uh, again, I'm, I'm overgeneralizing. So I want to be very clear, sure. very that I'm painting with an incredibly broad brush. Sure. But I think it's too often that our, our field, I'm seeing this a lot more lately, where our focus is starting to become on the specific disorders themselves mm. rather on the interactions and patterns that are maintaining them. Got you. And when you cease the maintaining of any problem, uh, and give more flexibility to that individual client or family or whoever you're working with, a lot of times some of these problems cease. So I felt there was not enough uh, information about uh, uh, depression. Uh, looking at not so much uh, any kind of ideology or anything like that, but just saying, okay, if we are, someone has depression, what are some specific actions you can take? What's a specific way to, to do that? And what I found was a big chunk of any, because uh, this the title Perceptions and Possibilities could be applied to any. Okay. You know, I could write a whole series of books, you know, volume six, you sure, know, anxiety, sure. volume seven, you know. But for me, starting with perception is that we spend so much time trying to challenge people's thoughts and individual beliefs about things, and sometimes that can be effective. But I found just their perceptions about anything in general. If you can alter kind of the way the meanings that the, the, they they see uh, about the world, uh, that alone can can create a change. It doesn't have to be I feel I'm worthless if I if I'm the client. I say that to you, and then you go, well, let's find the evidence that you're not worthless. And and sometimes that's a battle. But if you can get someone active in doing something that brings more meaning to their life, their perceptions about themselves often change. Hmm. Rather than doing a battle about individual beliefs or um, or attitudes or all those kind of things. And again, the research shows most all theories and techniques of the major ones work equally well in, in most you know cases. So I don't want to you know, put that down. Sure. But again, if I'm trying to be a transformational person, I want to be able to hit people in a positive way, uh, not in the limitation of just in their thoughts sure. or just in 
behaviors kind of. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, so one of the things I wanted to throw out there just to kind of see what you think about my kind of summary of your book is I, I wanted to throw out these three kind of points of, of, of kind of shifting perspective from how therapy is usually done and how, how depression is usually treated. And again, that's a very broad brushstroke. And, and just to see if, if you feel like I've kind of captured the essence of your strategic and solution oriented approach. And but, but before, before I kind of like lay that out, I just want to tell you, I'm so excited because even though I didn't have the language of strategic and solution oriented, I, I realized, man, that's so much of what I actually do with my clients. And, and, mm-hmm. and I do end up seeing a lot of like higher functioning autistic men and, and many of them are battling depression. It's not the only thing they have, but that's kind of one of the things they're struggling with. So what you were outlining is in some ways exactly what I try to do. I just didn't have the language for it. So I'm so grateful for you for kind of giving me that paradigm. Oh, good. Well, I'm glad. Thank you. I appreciate the kind words. Sure. So so, so the three things that I kind of noticed were you, you described a shift from psychopathology to potential, from interpretation to active interaction, and then from a linear cause and effect behavioral theory to a more circular or systemic view of how people operate? Correct. Does that resonate with kind of the spirit of what you're trying to get at? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And all those, you know, they, they kind of, you know, if you did a Venn diagram, sure. You know, in the middle would be kind kind of it. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. So I, I wonder if, if for a moment, if we could look at those three, I mean, if you could just kind of maybe tease out some of the things that are important to you, maybe starting with the first one, like psychopathology to potential, as it applies mm-hmm. to working with a, 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 an individual that is struggling with depression, what are some of the things you'd want to highlight? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, first thing is, it's really easy, and we're all trained uh, that we, we look for problems. Sure. And then once we get a problem... We then diagnose it as a problem, and then we make sure that our client meets the criteria for a specific problem. And if we diagnose that, which most uh, therapists uh, do and unfortunately have to in some cases, uh, some therapists don't diagnose. I actually believe that gives them so much more freedom. That's a whole different conversation for another time. Um, But we are creating a I think by uh, latching onto the psychopathology, we're essentially, uh, you know how you're, you're watching, uh, say, television and you have your remote control and your phone rings and you hit the pause button and everything's just kind of frozen there and you take your call. Well, sometimes if we're focusing on the psychopathology, it's like we're hitting a pause button on the client because now they're frozen for a while at least into this frame that we've labeled we'll just say depression or anxiety or or whatever and uh it's just interesting to me as a side note that after years and years of outcome research the focus on pathology has yielded no really effective change in outcomes Mm. So as my uh, my uh, friend and uh, colleague, Scott Miller, who is uh, one of the world's experts on psychotherapy outcurts, he says it's just baffling how much time that we spend on the the, patholo- the pathological aspect, sure. I should say. Um, so but with potential is that we're, we're what hasn't been done. What hasn't been said? What hasn't been experienced? I kind of view this, and in a way, this kind of goes for all three of the things we're talking about. Sure. If I see an individual and they, they're they depressed, they're anxious, whatever, traumatized, we work as, as we're part of nature. And with nature, there is a thing called homeostasis. And if anyone's not familiar with that, it's basically the balance of functioning. You know, uh, the the sun comes out after the rain, the grass grows, the rain comes. You know, it's a real nice balance in nature. Uh, the field mice eat, then the snake eats the field mice, then the hawk eats the the you know the the snakes. But it's this beautiful uh, uh, flow of, sure. of nature and and and. We're like that, but when we have something happen to us or we have some uh, experience uh, that's that's so intense to the negative, a lot of times that balance, it almost kind of like knocks us off balance. And then we get in a pattern of thought, emotion, and behavior that is due to that 
lack of balance. Mm. So it's like we've lost access to our strengths and resources. So if we can do anything to get our clients accessing their resources, their strengths, even if it's not directly tied to their pathology, their problem, a lot of times that little bit of of resource and strength uh, accessing helps starts to put the person back more on balance. And then they become the uh, problem solving, if you will, machine uh, that they are. You know, Bohart and Tallman are two authors who wrote quite a bit, uh, the researchers, about uh, that they think that change really, the magic of change is always in the client. Yes. So much like the the hoodoo doctors who felt that you had to create all these conditions to activate the self-healing, as did the Bohart and Tallman. Uh, and to me, that's going back, I mean, that's healing, self-healing in, in a nutshell. So if I can get somebody to access some potential aspect, some positive uh, action, thought, behavior, some experience that's so out of the ordinary in a positive way, a lot of times that creates the balance that they need to begin taking charge of their own lives and, and getting out of that lopsided view sure. uh, and experience of life. So uh, I remember a case years ago I read that uh, Dr. Milton Erickson, who was the famed um, American psychiatrist and uh, hypnotherapist, uh, he had a young man come to him who had um, severe we call it severe social anxiety. He could not walk down a public street mm. as he feared people would look at him and you know you know judge him and you know all these kind of negative things. Well, he found out that the young man was taken forever because he would run down back alleys and have to jump across fences just to not do that. So Erickson told the young man that he said, "I know this is a problem, but I really think you need to work." on your physical fitness. And as your medical doctor, I'm going to design a workout with you for you to do and, you know, uh, work on that. So over the next few months, Erickson, you know, told this guy, you know, go to the gym, lift weights, you know. So he's going in, pumping iron, getting big, strong, powerful. And then in a few months, he's somehow feeling more confident that he begins taking little bit of time on the street here and there. I love that. Because it, it was the resource he needed was confidence, security, uh, feeling good about himself. And Erickson realized that until that young man had an experience and accessing that strength, uh, literally and figuratively, uh, he would, uh, you know, it'd be a back and forth. Okay, let's do a little exposure therapy that may or may not work, or let's argue over what you're thinking. And no, not everyone's looking at you. And you know, then right, you become right. their mom and dad. You know, exactly. not listening. No one's looking at you. <laughs> Erickson totally had the brilliance, as he normally did, to see that this person doesn't exist in isolation in their pathology. The potential is getting them to work out, getting them to feel more confident through lifting weights, not even talking about the problem, just being able to, to uh, uh, get the guy uh, moving physically, which helped him then to become moving mentally. A lot harder to do these kind of interventions nowadays in the the realm of managed care sure but uh, i don't want to i've already said once before i'm not going to get off on those things uh, <laughs> it's going to be a three-hour rant <laughs> ahead. so but that that's why i kind of uh, that's the way i look at the, the uh, you know i stand on the shoulders of giants okay uh, i love know. that and i see that people were giving people experience i mentioned fritz pearl's earlier and, and his work I think is is his theories are, are remarkable. Mm. And he, he would in the interaction with him, even if he wasn't the most kind, generous person, he gave his clients an experience that truly transformed them. I mentioned Virginia Satir before sure. Carl Whitaker, the the family therapy, the whole thing. He called it experiential family therapy. Mm. So uh I think when you give people an experience of something that they need to help kind of balance them back, that sometimes will go so much further than just giving them information. Sure. Because 
that's unfortunately what too much of therapy is. That's why I think it's boring. Is that all so we do boring. is yeah. talking about the known. You know, you should be feeling more positive about yourself. <laughs> yes, doctor, I know that, you know. Yeah, yeah. So, okay. Oh, this is so good. So, so to, to that, to that point, if, if we, if we hover around this kind of second point in your book, uh, from information or interpretation to active interaction, I, I just think that is so important. I wonder mm-hmm. if you could just say a little bit more about that. And maybe before you do that, I'll, I'll just say, you know, in my training and so many supervisors and professors, there was always this idea of, you know, you have to be non-directive or don't ever work harder than your client. And and I just found in, in working with my clients that that is not true, that, that I sometimes mm-hmm. have to work pretty damn hard and, and work with them. And, and, mm-hmm. and, I, and I, I can't just offer interpretations or just more information. It has to be extremely interactive in mm-hmm. order for effective change yeah. to come about. So I, I just couldn't agree more with you. And I'm, I'm hoping maybe you can just do your thing and, and riff on that for a little bit. Yeah, man. Well, one thing you said, I think is really important. You said, I'm working really hard with yes. them. Yes. And that's important because a lot of times we, we kind of... We, I, I found we, and when I'm saying we, I'm talking about the field, not, yes. not specifically. Our field has a history of wanting to exert direction, mm. and then also feeling like, oh, well, we don't want to direct, so we pull back. And I find that that's the paradox. One of the paradoxes of therapy: we need to be directly indirect and indirectly yeah. direct, and, it, yes. and sometimes it, it's tricky, you know. Um, funny in those common factors research sometimes they have a lot of things i've read clients want us to tell them what to do yeah and i think we're wise not to tell them what to do but to give them access to things that can help them figure out what to do and, Absolutely. and sometimes you, you do have to have to be directive other times the best way to create healing is is to do nothing i mean it's dependent upon the person that is in front of you. So I Absolutely. have a client that I've been working with for just a little while, and I found that the least I say and the more connected I am and just affirming them, they're just making leaps and bounds where I'll get other people. And if I'm going to be the uh, prototypical uh, Carl Rogers, where, you know, affirming and all that, which is totally amazing and beautiful. Sure. Uh, nothing's going to change or they're going to get bored or they're just not, you know, so I have to be aware of who's in front of me to be able to connect with them on on what they need in that moment. And as you said, working with them. So I'm working with to co-create an experience in that moment. Some people, the only experience they need is to be heard and to be validated and cared for other people need those things too, but they also need uh, someone to, you know, give them some tactics to to create this uh, uh, new way of being in the world that they, they seem so disconnected yes. uh, from. So uh, interaction to me, I have found it suits my personality better. Okay. So I want to be clear on that, but I've also found that the interpretation uh, well, could it possibly be that that this is why this is happening? And um, I, not spending a lot of time interpreting is to also taking a, a one up position mm. that, that you're the expert. So That's a, a good lot point. To, yeah, a lot of, they, they go like, "Oh, I don't want to direct anyone." Well, if you're doing interpretation, you're still taking a one up, you know, position. Now, I'm, again, I'm not saying interpretation has no place in therapy. But I say if we spend the bulk of our time in it, there's not a dynamic uh, interaction happening that when that person leaves, uh, they they may intellectually know something, but they're more willing to act on it. Whereas if it's just information, they may or may not. Now, you know, they may experience uh, my my friend Courtney Armstrong, who I think would be a great guest for you okay. down the road. Uh, she's the creator of a trauma-informed hypnotherapy and okay. a really talented therapist. But she wrote a book years ago called The Therapeutic Aha. Mm. And she's talking about those moments when clients have that, oh, my gosh, things, I get it now. Oh, I had that moment. More times than not, it's not due to information. 
Okay. It's due to information and an experiential interaction. Got you. If you haven't made the conditions right for change in your therapy room and with what you're doing and that you're being therapy rather than doing therapy, then those uh, aha moments of interpretation or, or whatever are less likely uh, to happen. Okay. So you know, sometimes you have to totally leave the problem and do something totally completely different to create those shifts I was talking about earlier. And and, and those shifts don't happen when you're spending uh, time in dialogue, excessive dialogue, except excessive searching for ideology that, you know, you that, that's the one thing I, I found is that every school has their own idea of where problems come from. And at the end of the day, none of them matter if no action is happening and right. no change. So, uh, you know, I, I often butt heads with people. I'm, I'm more of a, instead of an etiology uh, model, I'm more of an interaction model, if you had to kind of pin me down. Yeah, and that's, that's I mean, that's exactly how I see myself. And again, I just didn't have some of the language that you provide. And so, I'm, again, I'm just grateful for that. Okay, so one one thing you you kind of mentioned, which which I've so appreciated in your interviews and, and the the several books that I've written so far or that I've I've read so far from you, is a really strong emphasis not just on building the therapeutic alliance, which which we know in the field is you know the most important factor, but it's almost and I know this isn't your language, so if 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 I'm not saying it right, please correct me. It's almost tailoring the approach to the person rather than forcing them to fit your theoretical model. And and if, if that resonates, I, I just, I want to see if I can share this story with you. Maybe you've heard it, maybe you haven't. If you haven't, I think you'll really like it. My own therapist, who was kind of a Jungian trained psychotherapist, shared it with me. I don't know if it's apocryphal or authentic, but regardless, I think it's a great story that Carl Jung would would would, would kind of sit there and try as best as he could to tailor his approach to the the radically unique person that was in front of him. And he said, I I do that to such a degree that if my various uh, clients or patients that day would somehow stick their ear to the door and hear me working with the person right after them, they might get angry because they would, they would, they would notice that I was almost a radically different person. And and I, and I just kind of love that, that, that you really, not, not that you lose your authenticity, but you really do have to meet the person where they are and, and transform your approach to their radical individuality. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and the idea of our authenticity, we want to believe that oftentimes that we're only one side. Oh, that's such a good point. Yes. And then, so I'm being authentic. <laughs> Are you being authentic with your kindness? Are you being authentic with your anger? Are you being authentic with your selfishness? Are you being authentic with your giving? Mm. Are you getting so we have everything we need to mold and adapt ourselves as we could to meet those clients? But I think this is where the therapist uh, self knowledge. Uh, is important because sometimes I've had to get frustrated and be open. It's like, I'm really getting frustrated. I'm angry with you right now, Mr. Miss Client, yes. because it happened. And, you know, that would work in that moment. But other moments, it would not work. It'd be all, you know, terrible. It's ruining the therapeutic alliance. Right. I, I have to learn to hold my tongue sometimes. I have to learn to take bad behavior and reframe it to change the way they perceive it so they can you know, have a new pathway in, in how they uh, do things in their lives. So the, I think a lot of times, as I said, we we have this perspective that we're not being authentic, but it's all in there. You know, I have a client who is, uh, he's in his 60s, and he seems just like the most gentle, kind, soft-hearted man I've ever met. I really like him as a human being. Mm. He's, he's so kind. Um, but when he was young, he was in the Marine Corps. Mm. Now, my, my father uh, was a, a career Marine, and okay. I know very well uh, those they're tough, tough uh, ladies and gentlemen, you know. <laughs> um, and and one of his friends, he was telling me uh, this client I had that one of his friends said, "I can't imagine that you were ever a Marine. You're just so same thing." I said, "Kind and gentle," and he just kind of looked at me a little smile and goes, "Well, it's in there." And, <laughs> And if I ever need it, it's in there. Mm. And I think that's it. We our our anger is in there. Our our desire to sure. 
you know, this guy, he, if somebody knocks on his door and needs food, he will bring them in, right? If somebody breaks into the house and wants to hurt his wife, he's going to take them out because yeah. he's got such connection with those parts, all those parts himself, the good and what we might see as the bad. I love maybe, that. Yeah. So when we are meeting those clients and tailoring, uh, it's also that we're, we're freeing ourselves from rigidity, and I don't know how in the world we can expect our clients to be less rigid and more flexible in their lives if we're not willing to do that with them in the moment. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I I, I know that maybe this is taking it a little bit too far, but I'm just kind of experimenting with how I want to respond to people if they ask me, you know, what's your orientation? I'm In a little bit tongue-in-cheek way, I'm almost wanting to say... I do a kind of bespoke therapy or, or it just depends on the person. And that, that's not mm-hmm. to say that I'm not trying to draw from, you know, important theoretical orientations that, that have like important research and data connected to it. I, I, I'm not just trying to make stuff up, but I, but I really am kind of radical in the sense that I am going to wait until I'm sitting with the person in front of me to try to decide what it is that they actually need. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, you, you know, sad thing is you could go right now and uh, uh, trademark bespoke therapy and offer multi-tier training programs, probably have a million people sign up for Because you know? <laughs> yeah. last I, I, I had read, there's literally over 500 different types of therapies now. Everyone's coming up with their own. Wow, that's therapy. wild. Yeah, and the, the marketplace continues to grow. And uh, But I, I think that's your own. It's like, what does that person need? Uh, you have to trust yourself. Yes. And you, yes. And you have to trust your client. Yes. And and if you can do both of those, uh, you know, a lot of magic can happen. Well, and, and, and maybe this would be something that we go deeper into whenever we explore your book on kind of a magical session. But in my experience and, and understanding of, of why maybe there's a lot of therapists that struggle with what we're saying, I think there's a fear of the unknown or there's just some anxiety around okay, this is kind of a new experience and I'm not sure exactly where to go. So holding on to, you know, a, a rigid CBT model or whatever it is, I'm not just trying to pick on that. Sure. It seems easier to them. Seems, seems there's like greater certainty with kind of a, a set model than the kind of approach that we're describing, which requires creativity and intuition and an openness to navigating the unknown. Mm-hmm. And it is terrifying. It's terrifying. It is terrifying. But exhilarating at the same time. I call it, it's like a roller coaster. If you like roller coasters, it's terrifying and exhilarating. And, but again, this goes back to, to what I previously said about trusting yourself. If you can get to the point to where your gut says, let's do something. And this person needs that. Sometimes not honoring that is almost unethical. Yeah, I agree. And you know, so. I mean, I mean, just as a personal note too, I, I can't agree more with the idea idea that it's both terrifying and exhilarating. This is part of what helps me stay excited about this field and my clients is the fact that it's not just rote and routine and the same old thing. Like that, this adds mm-hmm. a level of of nuance and novelty that keeps it exciting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, and and let's just be uh, you know blunt. What is psychotherapy what is counseling mm. what i mean what is it it's a way of you you look it up and there's all different uh definitions a way of um, solving problems through right. uh, dialogue it's you know and we don't have a real clear idea of really what it is that we do and in some ways of why it even works right but we we tend to think that we we <laughs> We're so smart in our theories and our techniques and those kind of things. But uh, I don't know. It's kind of like how many people would, hey, take this pill. I don't really know what it does. Yeah. I don't know how it'll help you. But, uh, you know, let's just try it. I mean, it's that, that no one would do that. But at least in, in therapy, sometimes there has to be that trust that, hey, I know you've talked to the client. You've never done this before. Let's try this. But, you know, so it's a whole different uh, realm. I think, and I, I, unfortunately, I think the day that we we moved over to looking at things more medically, yeah, through a very limited medical frame, that we've lost a lot of our power. I agree. Um, 
it's uh, not that there isn't aren't biological reasons for something. I mean, sometimes people get depression. I believe uh, sometimes it is because their brain's not working right. The anxiety, Absolutely. But a lot of times it's not always a medical uh, reason and looking at things to where it's a categorization of people. We, we've taken the spirit of play out. Mm. Uh, you know, I mean, how many people uh, when they do their intakes at, at therapy centers, there's nothing about what's going right in their life. Or, so you know, true. What, list of hobbies. You know, once how old were you in the first time you you uh, you know you did something fun or you know all those kind of questions right. that can be wonderful places to to start a discussion away from problems. But it's it's you know uh, those kind of things. And as I mentioned earlier, if you get stuck in that that medical diagnosing realm, it, it sometimes can can um, get you uh, very rigid. In, in how you you interact. If you can't down deep believe that you can create some change, then you know you're already at a disadvantage. Uh, so um, you know if if you're you're beholding to uh, you know insurance companies and then the the big pharmaceutical companies and all of that, and you feel like you don't have enough power to really create change. Unfortunately, maybe as a therapist you've been hypnotized and forgotten that our roots mm. go back. You know. Thousands of years, we are the descendants of the great uh, shamans and healers and, and uh, healing philosophers and, you know, people like that. Absolutely. And, and, and just even in our field, if I can just say say this. Please. Uh, we don't honor our ancestors mm. of our field. Uh, everyone I've just mentioned to you uh, in our interview, unfortunately, not enough young people leaving graduate school in counseling, social work, family therapy, whatever, psychology, they know very little about them. Some mm. haven't even heard of them. Right. And it's like we, we don't we, – we go off to this, let's go to the what's new in the marketplace. Ooh, the latest, greatest thing, which when you do enough investigation, you've realized that they've just taken what's already been there, reframed it, renamed it, read it. And it's two or three things put together new. Right. doesn't mean it's not good. But uh, if, if we could maybe tap back into that spirit of uh, creativity, that spirit of, of energy, that that I don't know what's going to happen and it's okay. Absolutely. Early developers. I mean, crying out loud, you go back and you read the early works, uh, uh, Brewer and uh, Freud, the, the story uh, case of Anna O. Sure. Um, they didn't sound like they knew what they were no. doing. They're just going for it, man. It's like a bunch of crazy shaman going like, I don't know. Let's try this hypnosis thing. Well, yes. Maybe it's this. Uh, so, uh, and that's we, we consider that the foundation of absolutely uh, psychotherapy. Although uh, some people argue it goes back to mesmerism, and that's mm. a whole different conversation. Sure. But, but we need to honor our ancestors and see that, you know, we don't have all the answers. And when we lose that sense of mystery, mm. then we just get into doing the take take two aspirins and call me in the morning, which, uh, you know, eh, kind of boring to me. Yeah, no, same here. Okay, so 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 maybe, you know, Paul, as, as we come to a type of close exploring this book, w- would you mind maybe saying a few things about kind of the third point that, that I – Kind of glean from your book, which which is probably the one that that I'm most excited about right now because I, I think it's the one I'm least familiar with. Although I, I again see myself already operating within this paradigm, just not really having the language for it quite yet. Which is kind of the move from the linear cause and effect to a more circular and systemic approach to things. Mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. I wonder if you could kind of do your thing with that for a second. Right. Well, it's kind of tying into uh, a little bit what I discussed earlier, that okay. any area of a person's life can be beneficial for them with the problem they're having, even if it doesn't seem remotely connected. Okay. So if uh, I mentioned the story with Dr. Erickson, the young man lifting weights, that would be a good example because he needed, this young man needed confidence. But a lot of people would say, well, he, Erickson never addressed the, his social phobia, his beliefs and his thoughts about – and Erickson said, well, you know, he needed confidence, and so that's an easy way to get him that. So if uh, someone comes into your office and you find out just little things like what's their highest priority in life, what are the things that are valuable, their highest values are, and you just redirect them to that, even if it has nothing to do with the problem, a lot of times that starts them on a path. Mm. of being balanced back to create that circular 
uh, homeostatic functioning mentally. So, um, you know, an example I, I had years ago is, uh, and I had a, a family come in and they had this uh, son who was a real, real good kid, but he he's high on the spectrum. Okay. But, you know, there's a little something there. Sure. And he, he was always uh, getting into trouble as far as not doing his schoolwork and he wouldn't go to school and all this. So he's, he's probably about 15, okay. 16. And um, the mom, who was a psychologist, by the way, uh, she uh, was pulling her hair out and she and this was they had children late in life, only could have one, didn't know he was going to make it. You know, so gotcha. it's a lot of anxiety. And sure. she's like freaking out constantly. Oh, my God, he said do his homework. Ah! <laughs> and, and the dad was one of those guys who permanently had a smile and just trying to do the best he could and not say too much and let the wife do her thing. And so after going round and round with these people in a session, it's like, OK, well. I've got to interrupt this circular pattern of interaction. You know, the, the son's behavior affects the mom, mom affects the dad, dad affects the mom, mom affects the son, son affects, you know, blah, blah, blah. Sure. So um, I took, I said, I need to talk to the son privately. So I took him to a different room mm. where it was just him. I said, listen, I don't know what's going on here, but I can tell your your parents are very anxious people, which is absolutely true. And the son kind of smiled at me because he started feeling like I was on his side, you know. And I said, uh, I need to talk to them because I don't know if the way that they're handling this whole situation is the best, which was true. And uh, he smiled and said, um, you got your phone? You know, watch a movie, do something. I'll be back in a few minutes. And I left him in the uh, room and I went in, sat down with mom and dad. And I said, here's the problem here. There's too much attention being paid to your son. Hmm. He has to learn that you guys are important, too. So here's what we're going to do. For the next two weeks, uh, we're going to uh, operate on this story that we're going to tell your son. I'm going to go get your son. I'm going to tell him that in the course of our discussion, a family secret has been unearthed and that it's the father has been struggling with severe depression. Hmm. And he doesn't want anyone to know it because dad's usually smiling and up oh, and all. And uh, I'm making this short because, you know, you got to do a buy in sure. and get them to, to do that. So they agreed that they would do this little theatric perform theatrical performance. And so when I brought the kid back in, I sat and sat down. I said, well, I'm family secret has been discovered. And then the dad was sitting there, man, if we could give that guy an Oscar, because okay. uh, he was sitting there with his head down, you know, never depressed. And I said, your, your father's been hiding this depression from the family. And it's probably caused all this kind of stress in the family. And the, your mom didn't know about it and all this. I knew the boy and the dad were fairly close. Uh, so I said, we're going to need to watch dad the next two weeks before I see you. I, I, if y'all can spend as much time uh, you know, making sure he's okay and all that. So for two weeks, making this very long story as short as I can, uh, the pattern changes because now the son, who before it was all about him, now he's worried about his dad, so he checks in on his dad. Mom, who's been so preoccupied about the son, she's like, okay, I'm buying. I've got to pretend to be worried about my husband having to. So just in two weeks, this pattern of interaction changes. And then two weeks they come back and uh, apparently the son's been going to school, hasn't been getting into any mischief. Uh, Dad says uh, with a little wink to me, uh, I think my depression is slowly getting better. Having the support of my family has been very helpful. Mm. And I I said, which I learned from the the, – the old guys at the Mental Research Institute in Palo Alto, California. Well, listen, don't rush this. Don't try to, you know, solve this depression problems too soon. It needs another couple of weeks mm. to be sure. And he nodded. And so, so within a month, son's been going to school for a month, been doing things. And mom hasn't been on his back any because, you know, they're just, so to me, that's one of many examples of that interactive performance. Sure. Also, the circularity that other people within the system could be impacted. And it doesn't always have to be a family. It could be, you know, an individual with friends, uh, with coworkers, even, you know, locations they live in, changing those, you know. 
But that to me, it's as opposed to uh, the son's behavior is bad. Okay, well, he's thinking these thoughts or he's doing these actions. And then it becomes this A to B. Sure. And we're not smart enough to know chicken or egg. Right, right. (laughs) So that's that's one way I I kind of just as a story to to explain that. Yeah, I know it's super helpful. And, And what I also glean from that story and your approach I've, I've been reading this also in uh, Bradford Keeney's book, The, Ex- the Aesthetics of Change, is, yes. that, is that the therapist in an interactive way jumps into the circle as well. So it's, it's not like he or she is on the outside, you know, just moving the parts, but, but he or she is a part of the system as well. Right. Uh, Bradford Keeney's uh, The Aesthetics of Change, I think, is a, a, a foundational text for uh, this view of, of a, like a social construction in therapy that, yes. that the person is a part of it. But this is something that all the great therapists always were doing, uh, but they didn't know they were doing. Okay. Right. Yeah. So it, it's kind of like uh, Beethoven did this and I can play the music he wrote. Sure. But it's never going to be the same. So if I follow what he wrote note for note, yes, it sounds like Beethoven, but Somebody might not like Beethoven who's listening. They may need Jerry Lee Lewis, you know. So oh, absolutely. To have that, that little bit of flair to uh, be connected with the with the person. You know, uh, Brad Keeney also, I remember reading, advocates for uh, psychotherapy to be moved out of the social sciences departments and into the performing arts Oh, that's amazing. Uh, departments because he's kind of saying uh, – Pretty much what, what I'm saying, it, although he's much, much more eloquent and brilliant, is that it is a performance. It is an interaction. It mm. is uh, something that uh, is not really, you cannot define it with a strict linear scientific, it's always, you know, this way kind of thing. But yeah. Uh, yeah, you're a part of it, whether you like it or not. If you're sitting down with a client and you're interacting to think that you're out here on the outside watching a family or an individual, no, everything, you're, you're a part of it. So... If you want to change your client, you got to change yourself. Which yeah. takes us back to that whole thing of having that authenticity to flow through all these different emotional states, physical uh, things. I never ask a client to do anything that I wouldn't do. Yep. So that makes me have to do more. Absolutely. I so, so love that. Yeah. So, okay. So, Paul, let me ask you this. I know, I know we've, we've covered quite a bit in terms of your approach in the book. Is there anything from Perceptions and Possibilities that was really important for you to highlight that that you wrote about that maybe I haven't asked you today in this specific interview. I, I know my my goal is to continue to connect with you and, and to have more of these episodes because I'm really just enjoying your work. So we'll have plenty of time to kind of get into a lot more things. But in terms of this specific work on depression, was there anything you'd want anyone else to know? I mean, obviously, I want anyone to buy the book. You know, uh, this isn't like a surrogate for reading the book. It's it's well right. worth it. It's awesome. But if there's something else that you feel like I've missed, I'd love to hear about that. The big thing for me is in many, not all, but in many cases, if we can move from seeing as someone as being depressed to just a shift to someone as doing depression, mm. that may shift the way that we work with them, may change the way we do the interventions. Um, because when you're being depressed, that's it feels like, and, and you know, both of us probably have experienced, you know, depression on yes. you can get through life without right, right. You know, but, <laughs> Good luck but when with you're that. in yeah, you're in that heavy depressed state, it does feel like who you are in the moment. Yes. But if we can get that possibility to see them oh this is a pattern of behavior because if you go down and you look at the dsm what are the symptoms one is a prevailing uh feeling of worthlessness and all that well if you can get them doing something that gives them the the experience of having some value or some energetic you know um uh, being lethargic is another one so getting people physically moving yes uh you know, pessimistic thinking, you know, all that. But if you can get them doing things that challenge that, 
It, and the, the flip side is if you're a very happy, well-adjusted person and then you write down all the things from the DSM uh, for the diagnosis uh, symptoms of depression and you start doing them for a month, you'll be depressed. Yeah. I mean, so it's like, you know, looking at this not always as something that who a person is, what they're being, or it's all just in the thinking. That That's an action that we do. How do you stand when you're depressed? Where do you sit when you're depressed? Uh, you know, getting people to do things, sometimes things radically different uh, than they need to do. Um, and now again, it's it changes person to person because some people will you know respond in one way where another person won't. But for me, just if I can get that perception and possibility that they aren't their depression, it's just something that their body's doing yes. right now. That alone opens the doorway that there's so many more. Uh, there's so much more potential for uh, new experiences rather than just the depressed state. Absolutely. I so resonate with that. Couldn't agree more. I think that's a central feature of how I understand my work with clients in terms of depression. So I'm really glad you kind of ended with that. So, so Paul, again, thank you so much for your time. This has been incredible. I've, I've learned so much, not just from this conversation, but from everything I've accessed from you. And yeah, my, my hope is that we will continue this conversation and, and keep on exploring some of your work together. Well, I'm I'm delighted to to connect with you, and I appreciate your kind words, and uh, also the work you do. You're out, you know, helping in in your way, and that's just the right way. <laughs> awesome, thank you. 